This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King. What an afternoon on the Red Road. It's a bit grizzly, a bit rainy, a bit rainy out there, folks. Stuck in traffic on the Gardener, as usual. This is our uh, mobile podcast office here on the Red Road. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically we're not on the Gardener, but... What is this highway? This is like the 403, isn't it? We no, just, this we is just... the Gardener. No, it's not. We just turned off the Gardener. We're past the 427. All right, listeners, you can tweet at us. We're, we're just approaching <laughs> Dixie Road, leaving yeah. Toronto on the major artery exiting the city. Is that the Gardner or is that the four, Is that the QEW? Oh, maybe we're on the QEW. <laughs> we have no idea where we are. Just listening to the GPS, lost in space and time. Indians don't get lost. <laughs> we have GPSs in our brains. Um, there was something else you said Indians don't do this morning, slandering me. Yeah, let our wow. listeners know. I, I what mean, you this said is to a stereo. Me I, I, <laughs> I, I was just questioning your Indian credentials because you are always seven minutes early for everything. I'm like, uh, what kind of scone shows up seven minutes early? Yeah, uh, I am interested to know why you know it's exactly seven minutes every time. <laughs> I don't know if it's seven minutes. Seven minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes. Like I get a text. It's never twenty minutes. Here or a car roll up. I'm like, <laughs> fuck! I haven't even poured my coffee or brushed my teeth. Yeah, you're early to everything. Yeah, I am early to everything. I um uh don't know what it is, <laughs> cause I I don't like being late for anything. But I also feel like it is a little bit, like, inconsiderate to, like, leave people waiting. And, like, if you say you're going to be there at a certain time, that you're there at a certain time. This is... I realize, like, no one else does this. This is probably something that definitely, like, my family um, has instilled in me. But, like, it's that whole, like, you know... No, I get mean... Get there five minutes early. Five minutes early, yeah. So, for me, it's usually, like, I'll get there five minutes late. You know, it's not a big deal. 10 minutes, 15 minutes late, I'll show up eventually. I'm always late for everything. And, I, and obviously it's the stereotype of Indian time, which, of course, <laughs> this is, is a thing too, like, very valid. But um, I have made the poor decision to start picking you up at your house, <laughs> which has like entirely spoiled you. We used to meet at a spot on the highway, yeah, but we don't do that anymore. Because it's it, just as fast. It is, the same, it's, it is the same amount of time, we've realized. But, like, I go to your house, and we agree to meet at your house, and you're not even ready at your own house when we say we're going to meet. Yeah, but I, I'm i never late. You're all, Yeah, you're late. No. The, you show up ten minutes early, and then I, you know, have to rush. I would like to be late one day. I think, I, how many times have I been late to our things? Like, once. Once. You'll, te- you'll text me and say, I'm going to be late, and then you show up three minutes late. <laughs> That to me is late. I, I appreciate, you know, it's uh, all the white folks are, are sure very happy that you show up on time to everything. Like, yeah, Courtney's very punctual. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, guess where I work? It's white people. 
you gotta uh, play these games, right? It's a power yes. move. This is a, it's a power move to be the first person that's at a meeting, and then everyone else just shows up late around you, and you're just sitting there, and you're like, oh, okay, this is the person that's late again. That's you. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's what capitalism does to us. Just mm-hmm. just punishes us. I mean, for someone so anti-capitalist, I'm surprised you're so punctual. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I can't um, get it out of my system. Probably because of one certain employer that I used to have that would, like, time your arrivals. <laughs> so if you were late by three minutes, they would, like, calculate that and accumulate it at the end of the Was whatever this, time. Uh, Indian Affairs? No, it's not. It was... Uh, I'm not going to say. People, okay. people who okay. work in Indian country will probably know what organization I'm talking about. Uh, and so they the would The band like, council. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So they would, like... This is, like, one of the only times that I've been disciplined. But, like, I was, like, chronically late. So I try to put a lot of effort into being on time. So, like, the effort that I put into being on time is, like, the same effort I've expelled my entire career... You don't see me as being late, but like I have been penalized for the often right, times right. that I've you've, been late. You've, you've absorbed the discipline. Yeah, I need structure. You know, it's that I need that high expectation. I mean, I I appreciate it. Uh, I, I I do. I do. Mm-hmm. We got places to be. We gotta. You know, it's the difference between spending sixty minutes on the gardener and ninety minutes on the gardener. You know, mm-hmm. it's good to be prompt, I guess. Yeah. For someone that doesn't drive this very often, you do complain about how long it takes a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, we do seem you got a new job, so we're we're, we're yeah. commuting a little bit less. I've retired. You're yeah. retired. You're now. Yeah. Do you ha- do you have something to promote on our podcast? Like I have I have my resume. Anyone? <laughs> Policy tumbleweed for hire. Um, these hot takes and this attitude and the front facing camera. That's all I have going for me right now. Um, yeah, that's it. It's just me, my Twitter account, and um, a subscription to Microsoft Word, essentially. So I'm gone on to like, is it called freelancing? Consulting. That's a more yes. respectable freelancing. Yes. Yes. I think it's calling it consulting. So I've started, or I guess been forced to buy a contract offer to take on some consulting gigs. So I'm doing consultative work around... Uh, Things around related to jurisdiction and social programming, youth work, etc., etc. All of the things that you've heard me yell about on this uh, and other podcasts, I'm now doing consulting work on. See, now you can be as late as you want. You don't have to be in the office for a certain time, but you're still right on time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll drop this. I'll yeah, drop you should drop this. Let's talk about... Because there's going to be a day when you're like, I need to be on time for this meeting. <laughs> And you'll, you'll you'll, I'm going to show up late. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I'll do it on purpose just to spite <laughs> you next time. I'll take on some of your passive Nishnabe ways and just do that kind of flex. Right. I'm trying to be more passive aggressive towards you to see if it like helps in our relationship. I think it's been working. <laughs> uh, never, never a good, good idea. Mm-hmm. Never a good idea. So it's a, a rainy, grim day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice. I mean, it feels like spring, but it is definitely raining. It's going to rain a lot. So we're mm-hmm. going to we're going to do a report report a podcast that suits the climate. 
maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and just talk about those uh, those books you read on a rainy day. Yeah. So we alluded to this in the last episode. Hayden reads a lot more books than I do because he's older than I am <laughs> and has a lot more free time and has actually gone to uh, post-secondary for a number of years. And you tend to, you read novels, I guess, or books. I, I do. don't know. You read those kinds of things. I read reports. <laughs> right. Yeah, I have spent so long in university mm-hmm. settings and have read so much academic jargon. Mm-hmm. And part of my job is reading reports mm-hmm. and legislation. And my brain needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a salve. It needs mm-hmm. a. It needs. It needs something else. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I consume a lot of fiction. Consume a lot of fiction by native writers, primarily mm-hmm. indigenous writers. Uh, so not only do you not really read that much fiction, but mm-hmm. you you actually don't like to read stuff by. You don't. Re- you don't. You're not really into indigenous fiction. Um, I don't know if I've ever read indigenous fiction. I can't think of, like, books that I've read recently. I will tell you books that I do like are, like, English history. I do read books about, like, um, you know, the Tudors and that kind of stuff. That's probably, like, the last kind of, like, fiction that I've read. That's not fiction. Well, then, I don't know. What do you, <laughs> like, fantasy kind of stuff? No, I don't, like I don't read it. Yes, I don't it read is it. fantasy, no, definitely. But, but you I, read shit about the Tudors? Yeah, I definitely have. Oh, my gosh. So... There's like a author who like writes. She has like a English history degree or whatever, like, but like history of England or whatever. And she um, writes English history like fan, like imaginative whatever fiction from the women's perspective. So like, if women were like autonomous actors as we know women are, of like thinking and political and capable of these things, she writes like. English history from the perspective of the women and like if families are at war it's like the women on different sides of these conflicts and like what they what their thoughts and feelings are Hmm. so that is the kind like so that book those books I don't even you know what I don't I don't know anything about the Tudors did you know I I have I really when you say that word it's just blank nothing comes into my brain Henry the eighth none of that is he a Tudor yeah. Alright. So, I mean, it's probably rusty because I don't, I haven't read a book for pleasure in like two years. But, um, it's like, yeah, Henry and his wives and, you know, Anne of Cleves and Anne Boleyn and okay, all, right, all, all right, those all right. people. So, what makes them Tudors? Tudors, that's their last name. Oh, okay. Right, Henry okay. Tudor. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Learning already. Yeah. I mean, I am discovering my English heritage. Your one ancestor. My one ancestor. Well, arguably his ancestors as well. There's a lot of them. But I'm 3% English. And so, yeah. Huh. You know, I really should explore to... Well, I don't know if I should say that. Like, I have a really interesting... My white side of my family is pretty interesting. Like, my grandfather came from a wealthy family, but was born out of marriage and so was adopted into a Scottish family and was sort of like a homeless little mm-hmm. Scottish kid for a while and then mm-hmm. ended up, you know, he ended up fighting in World War II for, get this, the Red Indian Squadron. Nice. Uh, and would fly ahead of 
behind, sorry, he would fly behind enemy lines and take aerial photography of troop movements and and then basically they needed more troops so he went on the ground and liberated, helped liberate concentration camps. He's quite the guy actually. Anyway, this is, has nothing to do with tutors. Yeah. Except to say that I have English relatives too and should explore that side of my mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean like, um, it's interesting. I like to kind of talk about this a little bit because like, the fact that like if you go back to like I think it's like my great 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 grandparents there's like 32 people essentially that you're descended from one of those for me is an English guy the rest are all Mohawk um, Cayuga or Tuscarora so I'm incredibly Haudenosaunee but I like to just like flex or like talk about this like one English ancestor because that's kind of like the ridiculousness of some of these claims like that would be like me claiming to be a, like a British national now that I am like you know, part of this, like, the, um, family that is that person's family, and it just it doesn't make any sense. I have no connection, I have no, like, understanding of it, but, like, I like to make jokes about it. Huh. You know, there's a wave of Indigenous women writing, mm -hmm. uh, First Nation history that's not obviously fictional, fictionalized, but mm -hmm. you might get a kick out of that, you know? I might like Tracy it. Tracy Lindbergh and uh, is, Edith is, Robinson. I only like reading about Haudenosaunee things. Katerina Vermet. I listened to an <laughs> audiobook by an Ojibwe guy, and that's my oh, contribution no. to learning about Nish ways. I did it as a gesture of friendship to you. What book? And my other Nishnabek friends to learn more about you. Moon of the Crusted Snow? No. What? Um, Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. It's like an anthropologist. Who wrote that? Um, That's not fiction either. No, it's not. I told you, I don't read fiction. <laughs> so, okay. we I should ask, be asking you questions. You're the one that actually reads books. Um, so, give us one of your favorite books. What's one your... of my favorite books? Yeah. Well, oh, alright. Um, I recently reread Leslie Marmon Silko's Ceremony. What's that about? Uh, so that is about a young man actually talking about the war. He's a, a young man, a young Pueblo guy that comes back from World War II. His name is Teo. And him and his brother Rocky... Well, his brother Rocky dies in the war. He comes back and he's all fucked up. And the book is really about trying to... You know, he's, he starts to suffer and he gets into, he's, he becomes an alcoholic. And, um, you know, he seeks out the help of uh, elders in the community and medicine people and, and tries to get on the good path. The red road, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really... The book is about is about him, him him trying to do that and the challenges but I think what Leslie Marmon Soko does and why the book is so compelling to me and why it stayed with me and why I've reread it is just I think before anybody else she was really talking about these issues around authenticity and how you know ceremonies change and shift and um, what ceremony and culture looks like and we've talked about this in the podcast car before what they look like under conditions of, mm -hmm. you know, apocalyptic settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I guess so that's just like a reoccurring question in my mind generally, and, and that book is helpful for me to go back to and, mm -hmm. and think about. It. Yeah. Okay. But I'm reading, okay. I, I, I've been on this indigenous or native sci fi apocalyptic kick mm -hmm. for the last mm -hmm. little while. Uh, so, I think it started with Louise Erdrich's Home of the Living God, mm -hmm. which is about a book 
uh, it's a book about a future. It's a, the, the the main character is a woman that's sort of alienated from her her Ojibwe roots. Mm-hmm. Um, but she becomes pregnant and she starts to explore them. And just as she starts to explore them, the United States descends into this sort of uh, evang- evangelical, patriarchal, baby-snatching cult, um, which I suppose has a lot of truth in current United States politics. So it's supposed to be in the future, and now uh, since she's pregnant, her her life and her baby's lives are, are at danger because there are people that are trying to, to take her child. And damn, it is... <laughs> I overemphasized the damn on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, is, it is a difficult, uh, really harrowing yeah. book. I think I have concern. I have a critique of it because the first two thirds of it are just so fast paced and utterly believable and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And then the last third gets into this weird sort of stern climate change message, mm-hmm. which deviates from the rest of the book. So anyway, I, I, I was reading that, and then after that, I followed it up with Wab Rice's Wabijic mm-hmm. Rice's Moon of the Crested Snow, which you actually mm-hmm. bought for me on Christmas. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and I think in many ways it, it's just a much, a lot of the same uh, overtones of, of, mm-hmm. of uh, cultural revitalization that mm-hmm. were common in Leslie Marmon Silko's work, but mm-hmm. he really pushes on the challenges of that. Like, yeah, it's one thing to be like revitalizing your culture, but. Um, know when when you do those things in a reserve setting it's not as straightforward as I think a lot of people make it out to be and this is complicated by the fact that there has been a you know society has shut down the power's gone the cells cell signals are gone and now the reserve is like a safe place while cities start to break down and the book is really all about this one community trying to survive and work through this apocalyptic scenario. Um, Apocalypse is on apocalypses. Mm -hmm. So it's a fantastic, you know, sort of story, a fantastic Mm -hmm. uh, little book. I I think that, again, I always have to be so critical. Why am I so critical? I don't know. Anyway. That's kind of your job. That's like, you know, I'm an academic trained to be critical. Uh, I really like the book but it does have these very traditional gender roles like there's not a significant role for women in the book to sort of push back and they're 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 a part of the story but it really focuses around these these uh, three men Um, and then I am currently reading yet another apocalyptic indigenous fiction this one is by Rebecca Roanhorse called Trail of Lightning Yes. And have I, I read... So you've heard of this? I've heard about... Yeah, I've heard about all these books. I just haven't read them. Right. So this book, we had our Halloween episode. Yeah. And if I had read this book in advance of that Halloween episode we recorded, I would, you know, I would have been talking about it for the entire show because it is such a scary, uh, Dene monster uh, mm-hmm. horror it's so good. It's so good. It, it's about this woman that is is a monster killer, basically, and she's asked by other communities in this post-apocalyptic setting to slay monsters who are 
kidnapping children from the her their communities and mm -hmm. they're all Dene monsters like they're all rooted in Dene tradition so it's so uh, compelling and, and I'm only halfway through it but so far I, I really really mm -hmm. like it a lot yeah so all these things this is like not the kind of like I think media that I like to consume so this is another thing too when I like when I was you know starting out in my career going to school I used to love watching like criminal minds and then See, at a certain yeah and at a certain point in my kind of like education and work experience and life experience journey like anything that is like scary or like that kind of stuff I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to consume it like reading a scary book I would never I could never because like why would I like I already deal with like missing and murdered women or like you know emotional labor for my friends and like the horrors that frankly men wage upon their lives that like the idea of just like you know for fun consuming these kinds of like horrible tales of like that kind of stuff just doesn't appeal to me I mostly watch YouTube videos and to decompress after the end of a long day right or like but there's no like I don't know I just have a hard time with like just like I don't know sadness. yeah I, I mean you know I, I mean? totally media that's like not happy yes I totally mm -hmm. get that and mm -hmm. I think um I mean it's totally valid point like why would you you, we experience it uh, to varying degrees, obviously, yeah. uh, colonial trauma and ongoing, and an ongoing uh, uh, circumstances or settings, rather. So why would you go and read about that as your escape? Yeah. Right? But uh, I, I think for me, it sort of offers possibilities out of those circumstances. Mm -hmm. So it's like you read this sort of more yeah. speculative fiction mm -hmm. and yeah there's horror in it yeah there's violence in it uh, and yeah it can be very mm -hmm. dark I mean Home of the Living God is dark mm -hmm. and there's not like a way out mm -hmm. um, so you don't know I don't know how those books are going to end when I start reading them but I think maybe one of the draws for me is that they tackle these complex issues that we are dealing with today mm -hmm. um, but I, I totally hear what you're saying I don't yeah. I totally do I will say you know the last good report that I read was like I'm reading one right now about um, human rights affirmation for kids that have been uh, like experienced human trafficking so I'm in the middle of that report it's quite good it's quite good do you have, do you have any elaboration <laughs> yeah. on that or? it like offers a policy framework for um, states and state agencies that are involved in child welfare around how they might create like a human rights based approach to supporting kids through service around human trafficking. That's very good. Huh. Um, I recently reread the 2014 homicide report from StatsCan. Also, another very good report. Like statistical <laughs> analysis. Also, another really good report. <laughs> yes. The homicide report. So, yeah. So, so Courtney, let me get this clip. Let me get this straight. You will go home after work, mm -hmm. uh, after you have, you know, done this uh, mm -hmm. uh, emotionally draining uh, uh, anti-violence or anti-racist work, and instead of clicking on Criminal Minds, yeah. you'll crack open the Homicide Report. Yeah. Well, like, I also, like, work a lot. Like, I think that, like, you know, as much as you joked about me not having a job, 
my job just doesn't have normal work hours anymore. So I, um, being a punctual workaholic, am just constantly working. And so I'm always like either reading news or, you know, I'll take a break with like watching like a Jenna Marbles YouTube video, which I know you don't like Jenna Marbles, but whatever, that's poor taste. Um, so, but then I'll go and like read things. So for as much as like the fantasy provides like an outlet for you that feels like constructive outside of like dealing with these like, you know, metaphors for the monsters that exist in life, I like to like read things that are like the constructive way out of our problems from like a policy perspective. You like to read and, about like, the real monsters. Yeah, I guess we're like, that's because that's like what we're fighting, right? Or trying to strategize against. And that is the thing. So the thing with like the 2014 homicide report is that they actually went through all of the cases of homicide that were documented, like stats can, and went back to 1984 and identified all the female victims of homicide about, of whether they were Aboriginal or not. Huh. And so that was the first report where you could actually see, like in a graph, like in a data visual, the number of women who have been killed in Canada and whether or not they were Aboriginal. And so what you see when you do that is that since 1984, there has been a decrease in the number of women who are um, dying by homicide. And you see the statistical trend downward to 2014. But for, for Aboriginal women, that number stays the same. So there's not really more Indigenous women that are dying. There's not less. It's staying constant. And so that means that Aboriginal women represent an increased proportion of the victims of homicide. And so if we think about societal change that has happened since 1984 and like what has changed around ideas around sexism and violence and making women safer, like women have been made safer, that's true. White women, non-Indigenous women have been made safer, but Indigenous women haven't been made safer. And I would support or argue in a, from a policy lens that that's because there hasn't been a significant substantive investment in dealing with the root causes of violence against Indigenous women, which are colonialism. Yeah. And so now we have this like longitudinal study that demonstrates that very clearly. And you can see this like multi-year collection of data now that says like this is, it's quantified. And so that to me is like as devastating as it is, is like an empowering kind of piece of information to have. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's all. That's all good. That's all good. Uh, maybe. So I mentioned Katarina Vermette's book, mm -hmm. The Break, earlier. I, I guess mm -hmm. I mentioned her. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, that's a really uh, compelling story about a Métis family of women who are dealing with uh, the murder of, of one of their kin, and um, is all about how they address that and support each other through that and and you know i'm not telling you what to read but this is this is worth i, I think yeah. if you're you know mm -hmm. obviously you know how people respond in those circumstances but it's you know i think that there's something mm -hmm. you know beautiful uh and even magical that a, a good writer can add to those discussions which can in turn give us some hope um beyond the numbers in a homicide report, mm -hmm. uh, or beyond thinking it through critically ourselves, uh, and, I, and I think there's so much value in that. Mm -hmm. And again, I guess it's part of the reason that I read fiction, but you know, that might be something yeah. that you 
if you want to if you want to give it a go yeah uh, a book that i might re recommend picking up okay so that was that's what i was gonna ask you next so like what for either me or for our listeners what books would you recommend well i already mentioned the three which are yeah. in this growing canon of mm -hmm. indigenous post post apocalyptic mm -hmm. literature i have not yet read cherry demolines the marrow thieves and that is like the most celebrated in this in this in this uh, canon as it's emerging. Uh, but I will, I will, I will. So I'd recommend those three. And then um, you know I read this uh, Katarina Bermet's The Break. I read this book in the summer by uh, not uh, by a guy named Tommy Orange called There There. And it was about a community of native people in in Oakland. Uh, and it revolves around this powwow, the annual powwow that's happening at, in uh, uh, in Oakland, and all these intersecting characters. And one of the things that I know, because we've had a conversation about this before, that comes through in that book, and which I really didn't know a lot about, was uh, the occupation of Alcatraz Island and the role uh, that Indigenous men had. You know, I always thought about, I always thought of the occupation of Alcatraz Island as like this very romantic uh, watershed moment of indigenous activism that was so creative and so impactful and changed the trajectory of the uh, uh, American Indian politics. And I, and I never had thought about the gender aspects of the mm -hmm. occupation. Yeah. And I had obviously started to learn more about that, but then I read this book by Tommy Orange, which is again fiction. Mm -hmm. And one of the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the most impactful parts of that book was where he's talking about, you know, one of the characters was at Alcatraz and experienced uh, numerous uh, examples of violence by some of the men that were there. And then, you know, these characters come up again throughout the book and try to deal with their trauma and address their violence. Um, so aside from being just really uh, good literature, which I think that it is, it also has... Um, I think some important self-reflection on on these moments like Alcatraz and organizing generally and healing and you know who conducts the ceremonies for trauma today and what kind of past did those individuals have and I think it's a perfect book for this moment that we find ourselves in and maybe I'm preoccupied with that given some current life yeah. circumstances uh, but but that's that's I would recommend that one definitely. So the audiobook that I just finished, which was I think David Truer, is that yeah that? David Truer, yeah. yeah. So this is his book, right? So it's it uh, talks about that and it talks about like I guess like a reconstruction of or I guess, a shift in how people interpret history to be more strength based, which was like interesting to me because I am. Uh, doing that work of strength-based kind of like indigenous policy work and so this was the thing too that he touched on in the audiobook that I listened to was around Alcatraz and the gendered violence that was perpetuated by AIM and how it existed there and throughout the movement and I think that like you know to the experience of a lot of women is that like I didn't that like those warnings and I guess those experiences and telling those stories are a part of growing up as like a native woman 
where there's different parts in your life and you're prepared for different experiences and there are aunties or like older sisters that will set you aside and tell you these stories right and it's not it's a warning but it's also like a protection kind of mechanism of a community of saying like this is what this person has done or this is what this is like or you need to be prepared for these kinds of things right so I guess it's the difference right of like the horror of like what reality is but I do appreciate like people's putting these down and expressing it in like creative ways I don't know what do you mean by strength based history strength based I guess that like you know the history of indigeneity is literally usually just like you know they were conquered or they were um you know they lost all these wars and that kind of thing and one of the points that was very evident to me in like the way that like this book presented history is that like if you think about the majority of indigenous nations as they exist now you know existing in reserve life or existing where they are most peoples are still within their traditional territory you know what I mean like your you know Anishinaabek reserves are still primarily in historic Anishinaabek territory you know Six Nations or like Haudenosaunee people are we're a little bit more displaced thanks to George Washington but we're still kind of in that part of the world and you know um Haudenosaunee people they're kind of still where they are and so in all of these different instances you see where people were able to maintain and defend and protect and continue to exist and live in their traditional territory right they're not so displaced and so that it's kind of questioning some of those stereotypes or narratives around history when it's saying like look at it this way right like everyone's still kind of where they have always been yeah. And they continue to build and build strength. And I think it's, you know, some of the discourse that's been emerging on Native Twitter, you know, over the past week around saying things like, you know, like the reserve is, living on a reserve is terrible, can be terrible, and is often framed as being terrible. And some people call them concentration camps and all that kind of stuff. But there's also, but that's also where my family is, right? And people that have gone away you know whether it be for school or work there's so many of us that like still feel that pull back home Mm -hmm. and still feel like the reserve is their home and that we shouldn't feel shamed because of that that there's actually a reason why despite all of the bad things that happen there why we're pulled to it and it's not out of like trauma or you know this kind of like fixation around it's not the bad things that pull you back and make you maintain this connection to that land and that space. It's always out of love. It's always out of family. It's always out of something that adds and brings value to your life. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really like constructive conversation around that. And I really appreciate it the way that that was framed. Right. So I really, and I think that part of my work around policy is I remember like, you know, back when I did go to school, there was a book that I read and they talked about how like, you know, for a long time, indigenous policy Um, was driven from this place that like you know we might not be extinct yet but they will be soon you know in a generation or two there's not going to be any more indigenous people left and it's like okay you've been saying that for 500 years it hasn't happened yet so how about we start constructing policy and laws not based on the assumption that you're going to complete the genocide against this group of people and then you actually build it from a place where like there's going to be a continued existence of indigenous people that you're going to have to continue to fund and support and share resources with and share land with and all of that kind of stuff right so I think that that's kind of where I try to come from with like conversational jurisdiction and that kind of stuff is like really treating 
indigenous existence with a lot of dignity and a lot of like honest and fair representations of how people would talk about their lived experiences and their identities as opposed to like whatever settler colonial narratives around us being dominated is. We're still talking about books? I think we're talking about books. I was talking about books, yeah. That was like the takeaway from this book that I read or listened to. Well, that was a really good book. Yeah, you want to look it down? Maybe I'll give it a go. Um, But I also read it because it was like from an Ojibwe perspective. So now I learn more about, you know, you and your people and why you are the way you are. Nature represent, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's obviously for me it's very, very important to not talk about history from a place of victimization and always mm-hmm. have resistance at the center of it. So mm-hmm. it's uh, actually an empowering discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Nick Esty says that in his latest book, uh, mm-hmm. uh, our our future. Uh, what's the book called? I'm I'm losing my concentration because. Courtney's drifting on the highway. Did you die? No, 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 no. Uh, you said I was going to miss the turnoff. I oh, did not good, miss okay. it. We're you're fine. Good, good, We're good. fine. So, uh, yeah, so th- now I do read books that are not by Native people as well. <laughs> you say it quietly. <laughs> <laughs> Just fade and mumble off on the end. So there's a couple books. That probably, we're still on recommendations here. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple books that I would really uh, uh, recommend non-native mm-hmm. authors. So there's, uh, Paul mm-hmm. Bettany wrote a book a couple years ago, and I think it actually won the Man Booker, mm-hmm. Booker Prize. Uh, it's called The Sellout. Mm-hmm. And that book just completely, it, it, it just turned my brain inside out. I, I thought it was just such a sharp and farcical mm-hmm. critique um, of uh, black and white relations in contemporary United States, but also this satire of black politics Mm -hmm. that I saw so much parallels with indigenous politics. Mm -hmm. I really, really highly recommend uh, that book if anybody is into uh, a challenging conversation around those issues. Um, George Saunders, you ever read any George Saunders? He's a white guy. Actually, I think his latest book just won a big award about uh, Abraham Lincoln. But he wrote a book of short stories called The Tenth of December. And some of those stories, like Darken Flocks. If you read that book, you'll know about Darken Flocks. It is, it is, uh, yeah, that's a that's a book that stays with you. Also very critical of, of uh, <clears throat> the trajectory of, I guess it's sort of like Dave Eggers in a sense. This, you know, he's, these, these authors... These rare authors from within uh, white society that can just really deliver that loud criticism. And then the last one maybe is Exit West um, by Mohsen Hamid, which is a short book, but also um, another another critique, I guess, on on immigration. Um, trends. I think it's like a set in a fictional Syria and, uh, mm-hmm. and and follows the path of this young couple that's trying to escape violence and conservatism and, <clears throat> and uh, tells their story. I would, I, would, I, would, I would put that one up there on the list too. Um, anything by Women of Color? 
Uh, anything by women of color <laughs> that are non-native. I mean, a lot of yeah. I read a, a lot of books by native women, mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, you got. Oh, yes, yes. Um, there is a trilogy, and this is a little bit outside of what I was talking about before. It's a trilogy called the um, Stone Sky. I think is the trilogy. It's by N.K. Jemison. N.K. Jemison. So it's this trilogy of an alternative world where, um, how do I even describe this? <clears throat> where the earth has suffered through these cataclysmic uh, volcanic eruptions and earthquakes and is like completely unrecognizable, but there are these individuals in, in societies that have adapted and can actually control the earth with mm -hmm. their mind. They're called origins, mm -hmm. and I think it was really interesting because there was this deep relationality with the land uh, for me, and so I read her entire trilogy, mm -hmm. and um, all of the people, it's an interesting element of the mm -hmm. book, like all of the, no, I, I'm not going to spoil it. It's yeah. a really good one. I would recommend that one too. Um, you're so much older than I am. You've had all this time to read all these books. <laughs> Considering yes. there was less technology also so when you were growing up, that the only right. means of entertainment was also. I wonder. Books. I wonder if the future generation will be sitting in the in their driverless uh, podcast floating cars and talking about those great YouTube videos they watched that one time. It, they're great. I also listen to podcasts. Okay, well that's yeah. That's yeah, something. I listen to podcasts too. Well, we're talking about books and reports, but if you want to, you know. Mm -hmm boost some podcasts we could we could make some friends here listen i don't listen to any native podcasts <laughs> <laughs> that's okay I, I just gave a list of yeah. four or five non-native books <laughs> you know what we're not into aboriginal content at all no <laughs> um, jenna marbles come on come on no so i like um listening to obviously i'm a loser <laughs> so the podcasts that I'm listening to most recently are um, by like Lainey Gossip, which is like it's they have a podcast called Show Your Work, and so it's for women or, or targeted at women to talk about the work that we do and the way that you do work and taking credit and leveraging yourselves and being strategic and thoughtful about the way that you go about your work and talking about it essentially. So it's very good. It's very huh. they deconstruct you know, Hollywood and gossip and, you know, from that lens. But they also talk about how TV shows are made and all kinds of stuff like that. I really enjoy that. Hmm. Um, I also listen to the Bodega Boys podcast. Bodega so, Boys. Yeah, so Dee's is Nice and Kid Miro. They are, like, two comedians from uh, the Bronx. And they have a TV show. They're kind of, like, podcasters yeah, yeah, yeah. and sort of personalities yeah, yeah so they're yeah so i listen to All their right. podcast very inappropriate and not safe for work very funny whenever american politics makes me angry i listen to their podcast because it's just like such a good like <laughs> you know to put it mildly irreverent mm. and then another podcast that i listen to is um called sleep with me mm. which is this guy who just tells stories in like a very circular way in a very monotone voice that you like put on before you go to bed and it's like a it's like a lullaby kind of thing he just like talks and you listen to it and it helps are the stories in. interesting no they're not they're oh. just like circular and nonsensical 
And it's, so it's just like this kind of just like you put it on, fall asleep to it. Because wow. like it's really hard to like kind of follow, I guess. Not hard to follow, but just like boring. Would and you it helps say that you. that's a podcast that you listen to or a technique to go to sleep? Oh, technique to go to sleep first, like, but it's uh, in a podcast structure. And Do you then, think there's anybody listening to our podcast to go to sleep? I hope so. I hope, well, I don't know. The Hopefully stats are useful to somebody. The stats would say otherwise. Listen, we have twice as many Twitter followers as we do as we have listens a week. But we're fine. It's fine. <laughs> and then, what other kind of podcasts do? That's it. Did I mention Queen's Park Briefing? There's like a no. podcast around Queen's Park and Ontario politics. Listen to that podcast. Okay. We're definitely putting people to sleep now. Yeah. Listen, I'm a boring person with a boring life. The most interesting thing about me is my Twitter uh, snark. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I disagree, but uh, we're, at, we're at the end of the line. Yeah, we've made it. We could do part two of this and talk more about reports and books and maybe podcasts. You almost didn't think we would make it here. You're like pointing out the way well, to get to your house. It's okay. The GPS is on. <laughs> well, I know, but it looked like you were going to miss that turn. Uh, we're fine. You made it. Um, well, not quite yet. But also this morning when you like braced yourself and like put your hand <laughs> against the dash because like I wasn't slowing down enough for you. That you were, was. You were tailgating. I was not tailgating. You were tailgating hard. It was you were, not. You having a very animated conversation. <laughs> your hands were moving. Yeah. And just you no... were accelerating into the back of this Honda Civic and I was getting nervous. <laughs> So okay. I'm glad the ride is at an end. Yes. But maybe, Safe we'll again. Do, maybe we'll do part two another time or something yeah. like that. Okay. All right. What? <laughs> Sorry, I just got lost in the okay. suburbs right. outside your house. It's fine. All right. Goodbye. See you next week. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car to the pound of the wheels drumming in my brain. My dash is dusty.